The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would now, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And our subject, once again, this morning is the rejection of the resurrection. And I preach on the resurrection here for several weeks now, and so you know that the resurrection is a very critical doctrine to Christianity. In fact, Christianity cannot exist unless there is an empty tomb. And so if you want to get rid of Christianity, the fast-track method would be get rid of the resurrection. And people have always tried to do this. They've tried to disprove the resurrection of Christ. They've tried to get rid of his divinity. But if Christ did arise from the grave, then he is the divine son of God. It means that you have to answer to him. If you could get rid of him, then you could do as you please. You could um, live your life the way that you want to live it. But if it's true, and we know that it's true, then there's a God to whom you must commit yourself, a God to whom you must answer, because God's justice is going to be satisfied. You have to answer to a God who dwells in perfection and is the one who's qualified to judge you. If he arose as he said that he did, then our faith rests on a firm foundation. If he arose as he said, then God validated everything that was in the ministry of Christ. Paul said that if Christ did not arise from the grave, then we're liars. Everything that we preach, every time I stand in the pulpit, I'm a liar because everything that I have to teach you is based upon this fact that Christ did arise from the grave. There's no, no point in any other doctrine that I would speak of if this particular doctrine is not true. There is coming a day, it says in the book of Acts, that God is going to judge the world by that righteous man whom he ordained and God affirmed that he was going to judge the world through Christ by raising him from the dead. And so you can see by that that wicked men have a vested interest in getting rid of the resurrection. They want to destroy the resurrection and they persecute anybody who tells what Jesus did for us and how he arose from the grave. And we, we see this in this passage here. There's a lie that religious leaders invented and it became the basis for persecuting preachers who spread the word of God throughout Jerusalem and the rest of the world. And the problem that leads to this lie in the passage is the discovery that the tomb was empty. There is no body in the tomb. And these religious leaders knew their power was threatened by the resurrection. Uh, so when they found out that he wasn't in the tomb, the body was no longer there, they immediately went into damage control and they invented a story to explain why there was no body. And they knew full well that he had risen from the dead. I think that they did. The proof was just overwhelming. So we come again to this second message where we're going to consider these verses about the lie that was told. And this is the first lie about the resurrection. Since this time, there have been many that have been added to it. And some of them are even worse than the lie that's told here. But this is the beginning of it, and this one is representative of all the crazy inventions that man has to try to get rid of the resurrection of Christ. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 11, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch 
came into the city. That would be the soldiers. They came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Now in the last message, we noted that chapter 27 and verses 62 through 66 is the claim that set up the lie. And that is the claim that Jesus would rise from the grave. Now these religious leaders, they never believed that. They didn't think that it could ever happen. But they did believe that the disciples would try to make people think that it happened. And so they demanded that uh, a guard would be posted at the tomb and that Pilate would seal that tomb with a government seal. And Pilate agreed to do that and so the tomb was sealed up tighter than Fort Knox so that nobody was getting in there. Well, this, this was our first point from last week and that was the astounding sovereignty of God. To see God's hand in what took place even in this lie that was told. Now we have two very disparate uh, religious groups that are here, disparate in this way, that one believes in the resurrection and people can rise from the dead, and another believes that they don't. Sadducees, uh, who are uh, the chief priests and so on, uh, they, they didn't believe that there could be any kind of a resurrection. The Pharisees believed that there could, and they taught that. But these two groups that were very different on the resurrection itself came together because they have this interest that they must, they must destroy the, the, any proof that there is that Christ arose from the dead, keep people quiet about that because they know that they are about to be crushed by the gospel of Christ if they don't. So they thought they had the situation in hand, they had a plan which would nip the resurrection in the bud, but what they didn't know was that the sovereign God was the author of their plan and that God made sure they carried out their plan to the minutest detail. Now God's purpose was for them to propose a lie, a lie that would be so preposterous that it would actually make fools of them and anybody that believed it. Now God, as I said last week, did not cause people to lie. He doesn't put lies in people's minds. He never forced them to do this because God's not the author of evil. But what he did was superintend what man naturally is. Man is a, has a heart that's full of lies and God just used that as he can so many times. He superintends evil whenever he pleases. And so it was God's plan to let the evil hearts of men devise a plan that would fit his purpose. They were instruments of God. And the worst lie became the greatest proof that Christ actually did arise. Now what we see here is God's sovereignty is all over this passage. We'll see it again as we progress through the passage. And an interesting point is that the lie, the lie never hurt the truth. The lie never stopped the gospel of Christ. It, it, it couldn't shut it down. It didn't slow it down. But the gospel very soon exploded out from Jerusalem and as I said a moment ago, reach the parts, other parts of the world. And the lie showed the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God because every time that man invents something new to try to counter God's authority, God has an answer for it. You see, God is not a step ahead of man. God is an eternity ahead of man. So there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to thwart God's purposes or 
cause God to be upset that things are not working out the way that he planned. This is what Job said about man. He said, seeing his days, that is, man's days are determined, the number of his months, of his months are with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. So first we see the astounding sovereignty of God. Next, we looked at the amazing stupidity of man. Now, if you want to hear more about the first point, the sovereignty of God, listen to last week's message. But don't fear if you don't hear that because you'll get some more of that today. But the second point is the amazing stupidity of man. Now, I, I, read, uh, I read something interesting just a few weeks ago. It was an advertisement for a new book that's called Stealing from God. And, and that sounds like a really good book about tithing. But that's not what it was about. It's not about tithing. This is a book that's about how that people dispute how to, in order to dispute the evidence of God, they have to steal from God to establish their case against him. The subtitle of the book is, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Now let me read, let me read an excerpt from it. Atheists claim to be champions of reason. They even organize reason rallies and call themselves free thinkers. The problem is there is no free or thinking going on if atheism is true. If we are just molecules in motion as atheistic materialism asserts, then we are nothing but moist robots whose every thought is the result of the non-rational laws of physics. Free thinking can't exist in such a world. So why should we believe anything the atheist, atheist thinks or says including his thoughts about atheism. And then the author goes on to explain how that science is lost without the ability to think freely. And so he quotes C.S. Lewis on this, unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. And so you can see the problem. The atheist insistence that we are material blobs undermines science, and science is knowledge. And without the reason why reason exists, then you've lost your case at the very beginning. So in other words, they need God to prove that there is no God. And that stupidity goes on at the highest levels of academia, folks. It's, it's stupidity. And we see the very same kind of thing right here. Uh, these people, the, the atheists and so on, they, they can't see God's existence in the creation. They're, they're blind to that. And we see something here, just outlandish, outlandish proof of, in this passage of the stupidity of man by devising a far less than clever scheme to explain away the resurrection, which was nothing but stupidity at their highest level. So the chief priests and the Pharisees were, were, were set up to show that stupidity. In the process, this became one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. The guy that wrote that book I just mentioned said, what if atheists properly understood are actually unwitting apologists for the God they reject? And what indeed, and that's what we have in this story. These are the really smart guys. These are the doctors of theology. These are the very best teachers that the people had and the ones that they looked up to. And they became the chief apologist for the resurrection. This isn't the first time that, that God made donkeys speak the truth. I want you to turn to John chapter 11, if you would. This was, uh, this was after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Jews were just beside themselves about what they were going to do with Jesus. What are they going to do with, with all the miracles that Jesus was doing? And what are they going to do about Lazarus? 
Here is a dead man walking, and he was proof every day they saw him that Jesus was God. So what are they going to do? John chapter 11, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, we know who he is, don't we? Being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that he also, or that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Well, Caiaphas gave that prophecy, but he had no idea the truth that he spoke. Jesus did all things that he predicted right here, but in a way that Caiaphas never expected. And then what's the insane reaction to this prophecy that Caiaphas made? The next verses say that immediately they set out to find a way that they could crucify Jesus. So we have here a donkey that prophesied truth. And he was a donkey before and still a donkey afterwards. And one thing that we notice about this that the King James doesn't really match our modern language very well on this point. If you'll notice in 2 Peter chapter 2 it says having eyes full of adultery. Now here, Peter is talking about false preachers, false apostles, the very same types of groups that the Pharisees and Sadducees were. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And that's really not speaking about Caiaphas, but it's speaking about people just like him. That's a general description. But listen to what he says. But was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. And to quote from Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. So, so here's, the, here's the issue. This is, a, this is a very easy thing for the priest. The only thing they need is a body. The very thing that they need is a thing that they don't have. They don't have a body. And so what they did was they invented, invented the dumbest lie that, they, that could ever be thought of. And the sad truth of it is, they sealed up, for them at least, they sealed up the resurrection tighter than they sealed, or the truth of it, they sealed that tighter than they sealed the tomb itself. Now, let, let's go a little bit further and let's see why. Thirdly, is the aberrant story they told. Uh, it sounds very strange, but a deviant, misleading story did nothing but cause everyone to think harder. They were trying to deflect away from the resurrection, but when they told this story, they put a bullseye on it. I mean, the, the people had to start figuring out, how could this possibly be true? How could what the Pharisees and the Sadducees say be true? How could the soldiers fall asleep? And how could all of that happen? And did Christ really arise from the dead? And so people are really thinking about this now, and that's what the Pharisees did. They made him concentrate on actually what did happen. What's the believable thing here? Well, we're going to examine their story and see if it holds up. And so we return to verse number 11, and it says that the guards, or the ones of the watch, went into the city and told the priest all things that were done. And at the end of the last message, I explained to you what they told. And there was nothing in their story about seeing Jesus because they didn't see him. There was nothing in the story about 
Jesus vaporizing through the stone and coming out and rising from the dead because they didn't see that either. But what they did see was an angel. They saw an angel and they felt an earthquake and then they were so scared of what they'd seen, they went out cold. And when they awoke, there was an empty tomb. Now you wonder why that when the soldiers saw that the tomb was empty, why didn't they all just get up and roll that stone back in front of the tomb and nobody would be the wiser? I mean, who's going to come and look inside? They could have just rolled it right back and then waited for two or three days when all the commotion is over. Nobody's going to know the difference. Walk away from it. Somebody steals the body then. Who cares? Nobody's going to look in that tomb. So why not just roll the stone in front of it? Well, the next question is, would you do that? An angel from heaven had just come down and rolled that stone away. Are you going to put it back? Oh, they wouldn't either. They were too afraid to do that. So when they went to tell this story to the religious leaders, I mean, it was evident something spectacular has happened. So in verse number 12, they go into full damage control, trying to come up with a lie. So they call the council together, the Sanhedrin. That's the high court that had conspired to crucify Jesus. And they got together to, to devise a plan to explain the missing body. And what is their solution to this? Well, it starts with this. It starts with a plentiful payment. Verse number 12, And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Now we notice something, that the chief priests never disputed what the soldiers said. I think they did know there was a resurrection. They weren't searching for theological answers to what had happened. Uh, they could have surrendered to the truth right here when they knew what the truth was. And they could have rejoiced to see that the Messiah had come and they were, he was ready to fulfill his promise to Israel. And can you imagine how glorious it would have been if the chief priests and elders had right then received Christ and said, He is the King and acknowledged that. They were within, they were within touching distance, just reaching out, just touching the millennial kingdom. It was so close to them. But their concern was not the glory of God. Their concern was their own exaltation, their own prestige, their own position in the world. And so they refused to believe or, or let the resurrection of Christ get out to other people. And they were not going to turn to him. And so they schemed just as they did when they said that Jesus' miracles meant that he was the agent of Satan. Oh, they knew there was a resurrection. There's too much, too much proof otherwise. And what that shows us is that believing that the resurrection is true is really not quite enough. Just believing that the resurrection is true is not enough. The devil knows that Christ arose from the dead. The devil knows that Christ was put into a tomb and three days later he came out of that tomb. Those are elements of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection, elements of the gospel that the devil believes. And James says the devils believe also and tremble. Demons know enough to fear God. Oh, they feared Jesus, when he cast thousands of them out into a herd of swine, didn't he? Didn't they? And those swine ran down a cliff. Did a swine dive right into the sea? Oh, they, they recognized the power of Jesus Christ. They knew who he was, but they're not believers in him. And these demonic men, they know the truth, but they're not saved. They never submitted to Jesus and worshipped him. Instead, they said, well, we can take care of this. All that we need is a big enough bribe, and the soldiers will keep quiet 
and tell a lie. And they started with the bribe because most people will do anything if there's enough money involved. Even Christians sacrifice their principles for money, don't they? I mean, how would we ever expect a God-rejecter to do what's right when God's own people will sacrifice their principles for a little bit more money? Well, we have to ask, where did they get such a large sum of money? Where did they get it? Well, there wasn't, you know, there, there's not one or two soldiers to bribe here. We're not talking about one or two men. They've got a lot of soldiers to deal with. But when you get money by hook or crook, it's, it's really not, or I guess I should say it's a springboard to much more illegal activity. Now, over there at the temple, in the temple, there was over a hundred million dollars, a fortune that they had ma amassed. And what they'd done, you've, you've heard me tell the story of how that they enriched themselves by selling sacrificial animals, cheating the people through that sale. And then also their exorbitant uh, exchange rates of changing Roman coins into Hebrew coins because Hebrew coins were the only things that were accepted in the temple. And so they had amassed this huge fortune there. The coffers were running over. And so it's no problem to go over there and just pull out enough money to enrich the soldiers, whether there's 12 of them or whether there's 60, as I discussed last week. The average pay for a soldier was $20 a day. So if you give him $7,500, that's more than a year's pay. And that doesn't put much of a dent in $100 million. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to see why it had to be a large sum because that sum was connected to the wild story that they were asked to tell. What they couldn't do, what they couldn't hope to do was go tell Pilate the truth, say, here's what happened, and expect him to believe it. So what they did was take the best offer they could get. And what is the story they're supposed to tell? Well, the best that they could come up with was the very reason they'd posted the guard to begin with. They... they the story put the soldiers in a very precarious predicament of dereliction of duty. So here's what they were instructed to say. Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Now when the soldiers heard that this is what they wanted us to say, they must have gulped when they looked at each other. This was a lie harder to believe than the truth, and it made them the butt of all the repercussions. But what's, what are they going to do? The money's worth the risk. It's the best offer that they can get. They're going to have to face Pilate eventually anyway. So let, let's see if we can get ourselves you know, beyond something here. Just get it out of the way. Take the money now and run if that's possible. Well, next we see is the, it, it's the pitiful prevarication. And, and there are too many reasons to tell why it was such a pitiful lie. So I'm just going to give you a few reasons why. First, they were to say, we were asleep when it happened. Well, how would they know the disciples stole the body if they were asleep? Second, all of them were asleep. There were at least 12 of them. Maybe there were as many as 60, and all of them were asleep. I've never been in the military, but I know the point of having a watch. When I was on the Navy destroyer last year, the guy that slept in the rack below me he wasn't always there sleeping when I was sleeping. And that's because there were times when he was up on the deck standing watch. And my, uh, my son-in-law would have to do that. He'd have to go up on the deck and, and he would have to stand watch for a while. 
And I promise you that every sailor that was on that ship was not asleep at the same time. Some of them were taking their watch. And that was the whole point of Pilate giving them a watch. And that was to allow 24-hour surveillance of the tomb. So 12 men would rotate the watch. And nobody, nobody would believe that 12 Roman soldiers or as many as 60 would be asleep at the same time. And then you have to think about what kind of noise it would make for the disciples to roll that stone away and sneak into the tomb. Uh, let, me, let me show you something. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26 for a minute, we'll read some scripture here. And uh, this is when Saul was pursuing David and trying to kill him. And David had his spies watching the surrounding country. And they came back and they reported that Saul had made camp with 3,000 of his men. And David and one of his men decided that they were going to sneak into Saul's camp in the middle of the night. And so David and this other man approached the camp while everybody was sleeping. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner, that's Saul's general, but Abner and the people lay round about him, and then said, Abishai, to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. That means I'm going to kill him with the first blow. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now you can read the rest of this later, but look at verse 12. It says, so David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they gat them away, and no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awakened, for they were all asleep. That's 3,000. They were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood on top of the hill afar off, a great space being between them. Now, this is what it takes for all the guards to be asleep at one time. If the disciples were going to sneak in and steal the body, you know what they'd need? A deep sleep from the Lord to fall on all of those soldiers. And that's a point that I seriously doubt that the scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, and all of them would have added to try to make their story believable. Now, another, another reason their story was stupid was because the disciples had no reputation for, for daring or bravery. They had no courage at all. They abandoned Jesus at his arrest. And you remember when Peter made his charge to defend Jesus, that as soon as he found out he was the lone ranger, he gave up and took off. And then you find the rest of the disciples, they've taken off. And, and so Peter and John came to uh, the trial of Jesus, and they were in stealth mode. And when Peter was found out, he denied the Lord three times. And that was to two young maidens that outed him. There's no courage here. None of them stood up at the cross. None of them came to claim the body. None of them believed there would be a resurrection anyway. So they weren't suddenly, suddenly emboldened and become risk-takers and they go to steal the body when their hopes in Jesus had been dashed. The strength of the Roman watch was a deterrent of, to any attempt to steal the body. And that's why it's there in the first place. So I, I hardly think that they would sneak in in the middle of the night and say, well, let's go see if all the guards are asleep. Well, who, who, who could believe the guards, that entire group, would be asleep for the time that it took for the disciples to move the stone, unwrap the body, 
put all the clothes neatly in place where they had been, how much time would that take? Thieves don't take their time. Thieves are in a hurry. So the disciples would not have unwrapped the body and then picked up that slimy, slippery body that had been anointed with all these ointments and everything and tried to carry that out. They would have take, uh, taken the body and the grave clothes with them if they'd done that. And then, if the body was stolen, why didn't anybody look for it? Why did nobody search for it? When the tomb was sealed, that, was, that meant that the body officially belonged to the Roman government. That seal says that nobody can touch this. And so, if that seal is broken and the body carried away, that would put Rome on high alert to find out who did this and to punish them. But there is no search. And then another problem, if the body was taken, the priest would not have said, oh well, these things happen, don't they? No, they would have been at Pilate's doorstep in a heartbeat, demanding an explanation and insisting that the soldiers be put to death. And you know that's exactly what Pilate would have done. He would have put them to death. Do you remember when an angel opened the doors of the prison and let Peter out? And you can bet your last dollar, if you're a betting person, that Herod was not believing any stories that angels let Peter out of prison. So what did he do? He went and had all the keepers of the prison put to death. So that's exactly what Pilate would have done. So there's no way that anyone's going to believe this lie unless they're motivated to destroy the truth. And God made it so obvious that the lie supports the truth. You can probably think of other reasons of why it's so unbelievable, but, but this is a dead horse now that we don't need to beat any longer. So let's look at verse number 14. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Here's the third observation about the Barrett story, and that's the protection against punishment. If this come to the governor's ears. If this come to the governor's ears? Well, of course it's going to come to the governor's ears. I mean, Jerusalem is going to be buzzing about this information. The disciples said there's an empty tomb, and we know that within 50 days, the news had spread all over Jerusalem, so people were getting saved by the thousands. 20,000 or more people became Christians. The disciples weren't quiet about it. People were debating this in every corner of Jerusalem. And so they filled Jerusalem with the word of God that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so you know that Pilate heard about this. And a big, big part of the story would be this. Hey, guess what, folks? Sixty big, bad Roman soldiers fell asleep. Isn't that a hoot? And that's what they'd say. Well, Pilate would hear that and... How much would he be afraid that that kind of news would reach Tiberius? Oh, he was already compromised and walking on eggshells, and that's how the Jews got him to crucify Jesus in the first place. So Pilate heard it for sure. He heard it for sure. So we have to ask, why didn't he execute the guards? Well, the chief priest said, we will persuade him. And they had influence with him, didn't they? They had Pilate between a rock and a hard place with the crucifixion, and here he is right back there at it again. He can't afford to get the Jews riled up. So how did they persuade Pilate? Well, let's go back to the money at the temple. There's plenty of money over there. Pilate had already been into that money once before. That's when he built an aqueduct by stealing the money out of the temple. That's what riled the Jews up in the first place at him. And that's why Pilate's between that rock and the hard place. So what did they do? Let's give Pilate a bribe to look the other way. Now let's go to Acts chapter 24 for a minute. It's time for us to make another observation about God's sovereignty. 
And we can never stray too far from it. Acts chapter 24 is the story of Paul's assurance, uh, appearance rather, before the Roman governor, Felix. And Paul was taken to Caesarea to stand trial after that episode at the temple that we read about last week. And here in chapter 24, in verse number 24, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperament, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Now, two things I want you to note here is that Felix heard the gospel from Paul. And he heard about righteousness, he heard about judgment, he heard about faith in Christ, and he trembled at the thought that he would have to meet God in judgment. And so there was at least some fear in his soul over that, but the fear that he had wasn't enough to temper his greatest desire, and that was to get money from Paul. He was hoping for a bribe to get, that Paul would pay to get him out of jail. And the same thing is true here of Pilate. The Roman leaders were not above bending the law to suit their greedy taste. So here's the point that I want to make out of this. What does it take to get someone to believe in Christ? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees were determined that they were going to stand against Jesus no matter what he did. It just didn't matter. No matter how many miracles that Jesus did, they were going to deny him. They denied his virgin birth and they implied that he was born of fornication. They said that he did his miracles by the power of Satan. They opposed him at his death and they said that God had deserted him. They saw darkness for three hours in the middle of the day and they were unmoved by that. They were unmoved when they felt earthquakes underneath their feet, when they saw the temple veil ripped in two from the top to the bottom. They schemed to, to uh, protect the tomb so that they, there couldn't be a resurrection. And then when it did happen, it was undeniable, so they made a lie about it. They were given the sign of the prophet Jonah, three days and three nights in the tomb, and Jesus would arise. So they had the scripture backing. They had to tell a lie, and they knew it. And then they started persecuting the apostles who preached that Jesus rose from the dead. They stood against Jesus no matter what he did. Then you have the soldiers. They were at the tomb. They saw an angel. They were frightened by that angel. They fell unconscious and they were under the threat of death because they were unable to keep their charge and protect it. Their post, they deserted. They were willing to face death and say that we all fell asleep. And then there's Felix who heard the gospel and trembled at it. He heard Paul speak of God's judgment. All of that and none of them. Not the chief priest, not the soldiers, not Felix, none of them believed. The rich man in hell cried to Abraham and said, Send Lazarus back to the earth and tell my brothers about this awful place. I don't want them to come here. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, then they won't believe though one rose from the dead. And do you seriously think that Jesus was not indicting the chief priests and elders, when he made that statement? Of course he was. He indicted them. They had Moses and the prophets. They were experts in the law. But they didn't believe them. They wouldn't believe though one rose from the dead. And so the resurrection of Christ didn't phase them. And do you know what that means? It means that 
there is nothing that you can do to persuade a person to believe. There's nothing that I can do that is persuasive enough to overcome all the objections that your heart has against Christ. And yet, you have our, our Bible colleges today that uh, tell their students to hone their techniques of persuasion. And preachers are, are giving manipulating invitations that pander to the emotions because they think that they're experts at getting people down the aisles and cause them to believe in Christ. And so are we supposed to believe that, as some teach, that all that people need is just a little nudge? All you need is a track? All you need is a knock at your door and a heart that's locked down in unbelief will suddenly be loosed from its depths of depravity? Well, listen, all of those things happen, and the people were right there, and they saw it with their own eyes, and they still denied Christ. And they still fabricated a lie to avoid him. So are we supposed to believe that manipulating invitations at the end of a sermon is enough to cause people to believe in Christ? And are we supposed to believe that salvation of sinners is a simple little thing as close your eyes and raise your hand? That's not going to happen in a million years, folks. It will never happen. Nobody comes to repentance and faith in Christ because it's not a decision that can be made from an unregenerate human heart. It can't happen. God has to bring a dead sinner to life. Nothing is going to convince a person to change because he can't change. Dead men tell no tales. So God has to bring lost sinners to life in order to believe. And though a person would see a thousand resurrections, they will not believe unless God opens their hearts. And you say, how would you know that? Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Did you know that very thing is going to happen? That thousands upon thousands of people will arise from their grave when Jesus returns? And there are going to be people that are left behind, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to make up stories about how it happened. They're not going to believe it. Those that are left behind are going to be plunged into the darkest days that the world has ever seen, and they will not believe the truth. Instead, they believe the Antichrist, not the real Christ, who caused the resurrection of the dead. And what that tells us is that it takes the sovereign God to change the heart. And so I'm not buying into some preacher's line that says, God has done all that he can do for you. He died for you. He sent Jesus and he died for you. That's all that he can do. The next step is yours. You have to do the next thing. And that's going to, that's going to cause it all to be effectual to you. No, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God uses to save the sinner. So you can't tell me that God has done all he can do and that the purpose of his creation and of his glory is left in our hands. Do you remember how I started the first sermon last week? I started by saying the reason for creation is that God created us for his glory and that what man has done, he's marred the image of God in him. And it's God's design to glorify himself. And if you think that glory rests on your decision then you're so far out of the theological boat that it's sailed over the horizon, you can't see it any longer. You have much too high an opinion of yourself if you think that you can write what happened in the fall by signing a decision card. Did you save you? Did Jesus save you? Or did you and Jesus save you? Do you, under, you understand that there's a Baptist preacher that I know that chose option number three. That Jesus saved me with my help. My help was my belief. You know, that's the same as saying, Jesus saved me with my help is the same as saying, I saved myself with Jesus' help. 
There's no difference in the two. So the whole point is that God took a lie and made it so crazy that no one could help but believe the truth. And that unbelief of the truth sealed these men who did not believe forever in hell as tightly as they tried, or more tightly than they tried to seal the tomb. Now here's the thing about it, folks. It's time to recognize God's power. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. And you're going nowhere but hell unless you plead the mercy and grace of God. That's not something that I can manipulate you into. I can't give you an invitation that will cause you to believe in Jesus Christ. Somebody is going to go away from here today still in unbelief. After everything that I've said, somebody will still go away in unbelief. And what you need to do is to fall at the foot of the cross. Not the one that you see over there, but the cross that God has opened up to your heart. You need to fall before that cross and plead God's mercy and his grace. Jesus died and arose from the dead. And that's the truth and nothing but the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the resurrection of Christ. We thank you for the power of the cross itself, how it saves hardened sinners, changes hearts, and makes us what we could never be. Lord, we thank you for the sovereign God who wanted to glorify himself and deserves all the glory that can be given him. And so he rested salvation in his own power and never left it to us. We thank you for that, Lord, because we know that if it was left to us, we would never choose you. So, Lord, we pray for those who have not believed in Jesus Christ today. I do pray that you would open up the gospel to their hearts. And when they feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that they respond in repentance and faith. And, Lord, we know that if you're truly working in them, that that's what people will do. We thank you for the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Bless us in this invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org